As is often the case, the sermon that I'm about to preach has already been preached, um, and so I trust that the Spirit will use what I'm about to say to add and expound and not muddy up the waters. We'll read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, the, the last of these seven letters. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank You for Your church. We thank You for the hope that we have when we read Your Word. Lord, for those who are in Christ, the the outlook is not dreary or abysmal. It's all positive, all optimism, all glory, eternal blessedness. Lord, help us to see that. Lord, help your servant. For Christ's sake, help your servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by putting before your mind two passages of Scripture that we ought to have memorized. The first is Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now we understand that the Lord in His omniscience to speak reverently, can't get away from knowing every single sin. When we we read in the Scriptures about the Lord not remembering or casting behind His back our sins, we understand those in light of His omniscience. And we, as I've said many times, we sort of... I, I, I hang my hat on the Lord's omniscience, that He sees and takes note of and, in a sense, marks down every single one of my iniquities so that I can trust, as we already heard, in glory, someone's not going to come and tap me on the shoulder and say, we've been reviewing your paperwork and we missed something. I, I believe that. When the text says, the Lord, should the Lord mark iniquities, the idea is that if, if the Lord would keep a record of our sins and then deal with us on that account, who could stand? 
And the answer is not one. Not one of us could stand in His presence. But with you there is forgiveness. With God there is forgiveness. The the taking off of the, the blanket of our iniquities and removing it from us so that we don't have to bear that burden or pay that debt. With God there is forgiveness that, to the end that, here's the purpose, that you may be feared. That God would be feared. In other words, when, I, when we recognize that the Lord forgives sins, that does not say, well, hey, or that doesn't lead me to say, well, hey, this is a, a very convenient system that we have. If He's just going to forgive them, then I'm just going to sort of live however I want to. That's not the way a Christian thinks. A Christian says, if, if you, oh Lord, you, there's forgiveness with you, and that's astonishing to us because He's holy. If He would forgive, then that leads me to fear Him. The definition I've been trying to give to my kids of the fear of God. It's not going to be in any theological textbooks, but it's simple. To, to fear the Lord is to live as though He's always watching and to obey so that He's always smiling. That's the fear of God. Live like He's always watching and obey so that He's always smiling. If I understand that this God forgives sins, I don't say, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to keep sinning. No, I understand if that God would forgive me of my sins... Number one, he's, I'm trusting, believing He's always watching. He's seeing every one of them. I'm, I'm hoping that He sees every one of them. And at the same time, I'm going to live to please Him. In everything that I do, I want to obey Him so that He's smiling. I don't want to anger the God who would forgive me of my sins. The second text is Romans 2.4. It has a similar point. And this is an Old Testament and a New Testament witness to this truth. Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you understand the kindness of God, that doesn't cause you to run into sin. That causes you to run away from sin and to Him. I want to be near the one who is kind. Now as we come to the last of these seven epistles and what seems to be the the worst condition that a church could ever find themselves in, we need to keep in mind the attitude of our God toward sinners and the attitude of the Lord Jesus toward His churches. The very fact that we have these epistles, their existence, that that Christ would come and speak to these churches and not six churches excluding Laodicea, but seven churches, He would come to them is a reminder of the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. But that's not a license to go on sinning. Again, the fact that there's forgiveness with God and that He is kind and impatient ought to increase our longing to please Him in all things. Now, as I've said from the outset of our study in these letters, it's very easy for us to read them and to assume that all of the bad things are about the churches out there and then all of the good things, those characterize us. And hopefully I've, in, in my preaching and in our, in our collective thinking, we've not viewed it that way. I've tried to bring it to bear in such a way that we understand that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. It doesn't matter who stayed home and who had church today at the end of the day. All that matters for us is in this room. What's, what's God doing with us? For a lot of people, these seven epistles are descriptive of seven different divisions of the church age. And so Laodicea, in their thinking, characterizes the the final state, the present condition of the church age. And again, strangely, even those who take that view, if they preach on living in the Laodicean age, never include themselves in that view. It's always all all of the churches are all in Laodicea, but not us. Now, if you read these epistles in that way, where all the bad is out there and all of the good is in here, first, we very comfortably pass all of them by without recognizing the actual problems in our own, converse, in our own congregation. But secondly, and worse than that, 
If we read it as though all of the bad is out there and all of the good is in here, then we miss out on the kindness and forbearance and patience of Christ. We miss out on the forgiveness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance, that is meant to cause us to fear Him. And and we don't want to miss out on that. A little bit of uh, temporal comfort to feel good for a little bit and miss out on what God would have for us. We don't want to read them that way. Laodicea was a real church. And some aspect of the condition of this church can and will be found in all kinds of churches throughout the time between the two advents of our Lord. And so he closes this letter as we've seen many times. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Anybody with an ear anywhere, opening up this book, anybody with an ear, if you have an ear to hear, let you hear. You ought to be hearing. And as you hear, you need to know anytime, any place, open this book, you are hearing what the Spirit of God says to all of His churches. Now we keep that in mind. And as we read this seventh letter, we need to remember that we're not receiving entirely new information. All of the letters ended that way. So every letter is a compiling, one on top of the other. It's not brand new. We're receiving more additional, amplified revelation from Christ about His churches. We're not meeting the Lord for the first time. We're allowed to see something more of the Lord. We're not finally seeing the major problem in the churches. We're seeing more of the sin that exists in all the churches. It's not that this church gets an exclusive remedy to their problem, but we are able to see more of the remedy that we've already seen in Christ six times. And the promises and the rewards that are promised to the church in Laodicea are not exclusive to those in Laodicea. They're not exclusive to those living in the the final division of the church age for people who take that view. I do not. These are to be piled up on top of all of the other promises and all of the other blessings that we've already seen in six letters. So that's how I want us to think about this last letter. Heading number one, we see more of the Lord Jesus Christ. More of the Lord Jesus And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, I'm going to repeat what's already been said this morning. The word Amen means truly or surely. Every time in the New Testament you see uh, truly, truly or verily, verily, that is Amen, Amen. Every time, that's what it means. Corporately, when when a church comes together and you might hear people in the congregation saying Amen, or we typically say Amen, what they're saying is, we affirm, we agree, we believe, or I can testify, I can sympathize. That's very often a, a helpful way for the preacher to know he's not saying anything that's erroneous, but that the congregation in unison is testifying to the truth. So if an outsider comes in and they hear everybody around them saying, yes, 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 they recognize you've got a a body of people who are all affirming the truth that's being declared. We've already mentioned in Deuteronomy the giving of the curses of the law. They read out the curses. The people said, Amen. We agree. We affirm. We hear. We believe that it's right. We agree to the terms. Amen. Every time they went down the line. In 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Paul says... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen or amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? The the argument there was dealing with the, the use of tongues in the church. And he says, here's the picture that you would want to have. Someone is praying and they offer a thanksgiving and an outsider says, I could thank God for that. They just said, Lord, we thank you for our health. Well, I'm healthy. I agree with that. I want to think, amen. I agree with that. If you're speaking in a language they can't understand, they can't say that. It's almost like saying, I second that thanksgiving and I affirm it to be a good one. So here Christ is given that title, the Amen. I think this is just a repetition of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.20. The King James renders it, I think, a little more clearly. For all the promises of God in Him are yea, that's Him is Christ, and in Him, Amen. Unto the glory of God 
by us. So he's, he's referring to his ministry specifically, but he says, all of the promises of God in Christ are amen. They are all truly, surely. They are all affirmed. The, what Paul's saying is the fulfillment, the confirmation and affirmation of every promise of God is found in Jesus Christ. So you, then you can ask yourself, has God made a promise? Then God has given confirmation incarnate in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, carnal men might reap the blessings of what we might call the universal mercies of God over all of His creatures. And yes, if any man receives any good thing, truly good thing, it is from God. But I think it's okay to, to, to sort of exclusivize the promises of God, the special revelations of God, where He has bound Himself to make special provisions for His people. And all of those promises come almost like it, they were jingling on the belt of Christ. All of the promises of God, when we get Him, we get the promises. As the, the line in the song sings, I hope we learn this song at some point. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. I come to Him. But the opposite is also true. Without Christ, nothing of the promises of God are going to be ultimately beneficial to men. Though we might be able to hold on to some shell or appearance of blessing in an outward form, Without Christ being the sum and substance of them, they're all like an oasis in the wilderness, in the desert. They might give great comfort and you might feel really good as you're running after it. Here it comes, finally some water. You're running, you're running, you're running. But in the end, ultimately apart from Christ, they will all prove lifeless and empty because He is the Amen. He's the fulfillment of the promises. So we could just... We could take the rest of our time and just read through the promises of God, but just several. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Fulfilled in Christ. Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Fulfilled in Christ. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Fulfilled in Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. To the end of the age, He will not leave or forsake. Genesis 30, or Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now you might say, well, in this life it just seems like there's affliction after affliction after affliction. Well, sure, but someday you're going to be delivered out of every affliction. How? Only through the salvation that is offered in Christ. Only. Psalm 130, 3 and 4, we just read, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. How can it be? How can He take the blanket of my iniquities off of me and just let me go? It's fulfilled in Christ. Those iniquities were laid upon Him and He expiated them, bore them out of the city, away from the people. It's fulfilled in Christ. Every good thing that God has ever promised to do, He has done and is doing in and through Jesus Christ. And so to, to work apart from Christ is to oppose God. It's to say, like Psalm 14.1, no God. You carry on your life apart from Christ, you are saying, no God. To satisfy yourself apart from Christ in this life is idolatry. To take comfort in something apart from Christ is base paganism. You might as well hug a tree or kiss a rock. Apart from Christ, it is deadly. To carry on as if you don't need Jesus Christ is to usurp the very throne of God. It's to exalt your wisdom above God's wisdom. To exalt your goodness above God's goodness. It's, it's to go into the the eternal counsels of the Godhead, if you could picture it. It's to walk into the, the 
boardroom of the meeting of the triune God and say, Father, Son, and Spirit, you guys take the day off. I've got this. I'll concoct my own plan. That's what it means when you venture or carry on your life without Christ because everything that God has ever promised to do is in Him. And so that being the case, there is nothing more vile than to carry on without Christ. Nothing more greatly opposes God than to venture to live without Christ. You can't offend God any more than when you act like you have no need for the beloved Son whom He put forward for you. If the heinousness of a sin might be measured by its violence done against God, and all of the works of God and all of the acts of God find their consummation in Christ, then there can be no greater sin than to position oneself as, get this, needless of Christ. Jesus Christ is the Amen. He's the fulfillment. He is the satisfaction. He is the comfort. He is the treasure. He is the wisdom. He is the goodness. He is the honey from the rock. He is the resurrection and the life. He is everything. There's nothing that God has ever promised to do that is not found in Christ. Everything that God has ever set Himself to pour out in goodness upon His people is found in Jesus Christ. He's the Amen. That might be the most all encompassing or comprehensive title that he could have. Next, notice that he's the faithful and true witness. Now some say that this is sort of expanding the previous title, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, which I I can go with that. Again, I think these these titles are are very comprehensive. In 2.13, we saw that Antipas was the faithful witness. That is, he was faithful unto the end. Well, if Christ is the faithful and true witness, Christ Himself is faithful. Christ is dependable. He's unwavering to the very end, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In verse 7 last week, we saw that He is true, that is, genuine, exact. He is the infallible One. In chapter 1, verse 5, we saw that He is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And in that text, we look at John 18, 37. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus Christ is the witness of God, testifying to His, in His person to who God is, what God is like. He's the very Word of God in the flesh. If, if Jesus Himself would say that from the, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, then when we see the very logos of God, we're seeing the very heart of God coming out and we're seeing God as He would have us to see Him in Christ. He's the witness of God. He's the witness to God's truth. The Amen, the verification and vindication of everything God has ever said. All of God's promises. He's a witness from God to the churches to give God's verdict and to bring God's rebuke, God's reproof, God's correction to the churches because He is God in the flesh. So as the faithful and true witness, Christ can speak authoritatively to the problems in the churches. Whatever He says is what God says. He is God. His view is not clouded or confused. He doesn't misrepresent the churches. He doesn't falsify information because all judgment has been handed to the Son. He has sole authority to come to the church and say, here's your problem. And they can't argue. Again, men might venture to live apart from Christ, but they're not able, or they're not going to be able to ultimately avoid Him. There will be a, a long period of time when you might think you're living without Him, but there will come a day when you'll be You'll be living, and you will not be able to avoid Him. How awful will it be to stand in the judgment and to be judged by the very One that you strove against and spurned your whole life? He's going to judge you. And at the same time, as the faithful and true witness, Christ can speak in a trustworthy manner to the solution in these churches. Think of it this way. If you're working in a, at a job and one of your coworkers comes to you and says, Hey man, 
I heard we're getting raises. You're going to get a raise. I'd say, that doesn't mean anything to me coming from you. You don't have the authority to say that, nor do you have the authority to make good on it. But if the, the boss or the manager comes and says, hey, everybody's getting raises, he has the authority to make that declaration and the authority to fulfill it. It's the same with Christ. He is the faithful and true witness. He can make the declaration, He can make the promises, and He has the authority to make good on the promises. His words are true words, trustworthy words. A church can lean on the promises made by Christ. He doesn't speak out of turn. He doesn't get ahead of Himself. He doesn't say, now let me, let me go confirm this with my manager, but I think I can work out, I think I can get you a deal. I'm going to have to talk to my manager, but I think we can, he doesn't have to do that. He can come and say, this is where you are, and this is what I'm going to do. Here are the promises, and I will fulfill it. Because he's the faithful and true witness and the amen, the fulfillment of every promise of God. Then he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, the, the easiest way to interpret this is in light of statements like John 1.3, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. In other words, the easiest and simplest way is to see this as Christ being set forth as the origin of all creation. Everything that exists, exists by Him and through Him and unto Him. He's the source of it and the goal of it or reason for it. But a lot of commentators suggest that there might be also here an allusion to the new creation, which, of which Christ is also the first fruits. In chapter 1, verse 5, we read that He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. It went straight into His preeminence. Having died and rose from the dead, He has the title of preeminence. In 1 Corinthians, and I'm just, this is a whole other sermon. I'm just going to go through this quickly and we could, we could elaborate on it more and I'll summarize in a second. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, we learn that Christ is the firstfruits of the Resurrection. In other words, He was raised from the dead, the preeminent one, and many others are to follow Him. Now what does that have to do with the new creation and us? The word regeneration is used twice in the, in the New Testament. Once to refer to what happens to us in our hearts, and another time to refer to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Compare that to Revelation 21. All things have passed away, behold, all things are made new. The idea behind this, this suggestion that what John is, or what Christ is saying of himself is, I am the beginning of the new creation, is that Christ was raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's the beginning of the new creation of God. The only place this phrase is used in the New Testament, the beginning of God's creation or creation of God. When we're born again, we undergo part of that new creation work of God. And when Christ returns, all of the new creation work is going to be consummated in Him and finished in us. In the first creation, God made the heavens and the earth, and then He made man to be on that earth. In the new creation, He's already begun the recreation in men, and all of creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God when Christ returns. It sort of reverses itself. And in Revelation 21.5, He who is seated on the throne, that is God and the Lamb, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Both of these are truths in Scripture. Whether you take Christ as the origin and source of the original creation, Christ as the origin and source of the new creation, yes, He's God over all. He rules over everything in this world and in the next world. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning of it all, the end of it all. He started it, He's going to finish it. He set forth its initial purpose. He will bring it to that purpose because He is that purpose. Nothing that exists, exists apart from Him. Nothing will continue to exist apart from Him. No life, no breath, no heartbeat, no brain waves apart from Him. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He sustains all things to the end. 
Christ Jesus does that. The saints of God, as a congregation or as an individual, you, if you're a Christian, you are effectively invincible until Christ is finished with you. As a congregation, we are invincible until Christ is finished with us because He sustains the life. And in that same vein, if we're not drawing upon Him, spiritually speaking, we have no life. We learned that in Sardis. Here's the point. If we ever feel as though we've gotten to the point that we can maintain ourselves, maintain our ministry, or maintain our ecclesiastical identity apart from Jesus Christ, we're utterly deceived. He's the Amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the source and origin of creation, new and old. Without Him, there's nothing. You don't have anything apart from Him. Now the second heading is more of sin in verses 15 to 17. More of sin. The problem is always sin. Sinful ways of thinking, sinful ways of acting, sinful motivations from the start, sinful intentions trying to be accomplished. The problem in any church is not lack of clarity on God's part. It's not lack of provision on God's part. It's not that God is harsh. It's not that God reaps where He has not sown. God's not going to come and Christ doesn't come to churches expecting fruit where He has not already poured out Himself and His very life into that church. To use the language of Isaiah 5, He plants the vineyard, He digs it out, He clears it of vines, He then plants new choice vines and He watches over it. And we can't come to Him and say, well, the problem must be with you, God, because we're doing everything perfectly. No, He's going to say, what more is there to do? that I've not already done it. He does everything. So anytime there's a failure in the church, we don't have a right to look at God and say, what have you done? Why aren't you producing here? Why aren't we growing? Why, aren't, why isn't there any expansion? It's always sin. So he says, I know your works. You are neither hot, or you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now there is so much written about these words that is, doesn't have anything to do with the point of the letter. Let's, let's come down to the point. What is Christ saying to His church? He's saying, in a, little, a literal translation, the language is... I'm spitting you out of my mouth. Not I will. It's done. You're being spewed. This church was absolutely repulsive to Christ. Sickening to Him. He could not endure them. Now why is that? You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. Now a lot of commentators go back and forth about water. Well, you don't drink hot, mineral water. He's talking about something in his mouth. And the historical validity to the claims about the water are not substantial. The point is not, well, I wish I could drink you or I wish I could take a bath in you. The point is that you are, and he explains it, you're self-sufficient. He literally goes on in this passage to explain what he means by you're neither hot nor cold. He tells them, for... You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This is their sin. This is the sin that makes the church repulsive to Christ. Constituted them unworthy of a single commendation. The sin that made them offensive and repulsive to their Lord. Wicked self-sufficiency. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Very similar to the parable of the farmer in Luke 12. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool. 
Now, what was his sin? Was his sin being rich? No. Was his sin being productive? No. Was his sin being industrious with his harvest and building bigger barns? No. His sin was that he reaped this large harvest and then he thought, now will be a good time to coast. My past produce will be sufficient to carry me forward and therefore at the moment, I really don't need anything. He was fine where he was. That's the picture of the saints in Laodicea. They had this very same mentality. We've done well. We're comfortable. This should carry us on through. And they stopped needing. They said, we don't need anything. When you or we as a congregation stop needing, when we feel like we need nothing, and those are two different things, to stop needing negatively and then to positively feel like you need nothing. When you get to either one of those points, when we feel like we've advanced so far that we might as well just coast on to glory with barns full of grace, we effectively spit in God's face who's given His own Son as a constant source of provision. The one thing... God has put forward for His churches to be our constant source to fulfill every promise, the incarnation of every good thing from now until He returns and even into eternity to look at that and say, I think I'm good. Repulsive. So He explains the reality of their situation. They felt no need. They were actually in the place of the most dire need. The end of verse 17, he says, Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Wretched or miserable. We throw this word around a lot, wretched. We get accustomed to it. In the, <clears throat> in the Reformed community, we've developed this sort of love for self-brutality, and so we just, I'm a wretch. If we knew what that word meant, we wouldn't say it so much. The reason that we say words like that a lot is to soften up the term so that it's not so heavy upon us. It's only used one other time in Scripture in Romans 7.24 when Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now notice, when Paul said it, it was in direct connection to his felt need. He had just walked through how powerless the law was to do anything for his soul. It cannot fix him. He had this war in him. He felt that need. And it's like he's looked, looking out saying, Who will set me free? I can't set me free. I don't have it. It's the very opposite of being needless. He's saying, I'm all need. I can't do anything. I'm impotent. Christ says these saints are wretched because they think they don't need Him. They're miserable in themselves. He says, you're pitiable. And this deals more so with how they were perceived by outsiders. Not that they were actually perceived, but how they could have been thought of, thought of by people looking outside their situation. When you pity someone, you're looking at their situation and, and feeling pity. Again, the terms used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying if, if we're all these people who get together basing everything we believe on the resurrection from the dead and it can't happen, then it's like the whole world is looking at us not realizing that we're the butt of this funny joke. We are self-deceived. We're of all people most to be pitied. Everybody's laughing at the Christians who are convinced that this man rose from the dead when people can't rise from the dead. That's pitiable. Again, it's the very opposite of self-sufficiency. The people who are pitiable in, in 1 Corinthians are people who are self-deceived if in fact the dead are not raised. They think they know, but they don't know. They know very much that isn't so. And from the outside, again, people just look and they say, Oh, that's sad. They're so helpless. That's how Christ looks at this church. In Laodicea, they thought, hey, we got everything we need. And he says, oh, you're helpless, sad. In our world, self-sufficiency is like the supreme aim of life. 
Everybody strives for that. I just want to get to the point where I can, I can just, just sustain myself or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's retirement or something. Just finally get to that point where I'm not under anybody's thumb and I can do my own thing. In Christianity, self-sufficiency is the bane of our existence. That's our problem. We think we're sufficient. He says, you're not. You're wretched. Miserable. You're pitiable. You're poor, blind, naked, spiritually speaking. Spiritually impoverished, spiritually blind, clueless to your condition. Can you imagine sitting here in this sermon thinking, that's not us. And Christ saying, no, it's you. But you don't see it. You think you're fine. Spiritually naked, exposed to shame and humiliation and disgrace. That's their problem. That's, that's the sin. Self-sufficiency, clueless to their condition. Now, what do they need? Not what, the, not what is their perceived need, because we've already, we already see that they're blind. What's their actual need? Third heading, verses 18 and 19, more of the remedy that's found in Christ. Listen to His words. I counsel you. You can hear the tenderness of Christ. In his appeal. Another translation uses the word advising. He's advising them. He has every right to come to them and lord a command over them, but he doesn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say he's suggesting, but he's he's coming to them making an appeal. And when you give this kind of counsel, the implication is that wisdom is coming down and taking advantage of the rational faculties of the mind and offering them a way that is clearly, discernibly better. Just stop. Just think. Can you not see? I've got something better. I want to offer this to you. I want to counsel you to, to do this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may not see. How can we read this and not think of Isaiah 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He said, I don't have any money. He says, it's fine. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And notice how he appeals to reason. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. He has all that we need, free for the taking. And he cries out. Christ does this many times. Cries out with an, an exhaustive, sweeping plea to anyone who would come. Just come. And, and he reasons with them. Come. Why would you spend your money for those things? I've got what you need. In Laodicea, he's offering them in himself all that they need. Everything that they think they have and they don't actually have. He's saying, I can give it to you for real. I can give you the real thing. Gold refined by fire that you may be rich. True, pure, undefiled spiritual prosperity. Not the wealth that the world offers. In Proverbs chapter 8, Christ says this, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is in Christ. In Him we have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. He says, just come and get it. Why would you go after that? Garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. We go back to Genesis 3. Without the covering provided by God, we stand in open shame. Even if we can't see it, God sees it. But God puts forth His Son, 
1 Corinthians 1.30, the Lord our righteousness, He gives the righteousness in Christ to cover us. Psalm 32.1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 85.2, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin. He's saying, come and I'll cover it. Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They were blind, unable to see their condition. They didn't know how bad it was. They thought they were fine. They looked around and they could see prosperity and ease and riches. We don't have a word here of of confrontation or anything with their culture. They couldn't see. They're in desperate need. He says, come, I'll give you what you need to see. The spirit of illumination. We can't see ourselves rightly apart from Christ. As a church, we can't. We can't see God rightly apart from Christ. We don't know how evil our sin is until we've looked at Christ, especially on the cross. We don't know how great redemption is until we've considered Christ. It's all in Him. Riches, covering, sight. He comes to Laodicea and He wants this for them. For us. He wants this for us. I'm counseling you. Think about it. Use your your reason, your rational faculties. Imagine a Savior who delighted in the sons of men before our salvation, came to the earth to accomplish our salvation through His death and resurrection, ascended into the heavens to give us His Spirit, whoever lives to make intercession for us, looking down on a church full of people who have settled it in their minds, we're good, we don't need you anymore, we're fine. He looks down on them and He comes to them and He says, I would have you rich. I would have you covered. I would have you see. I have the gold, the righteousness. I have the spirit of illumination. I counsel you. I'm advising you. Would you not just come to me? I've got it. And he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He is displaying his love for this church. In Philadelphia, he said that he loved them because in their outlook, they couldn't see it. To this church, he displays his love for them because they wouldn't hear it. A true friend wouldn't watch you plummet into destruction and say nothing. You see, it's the love of Christ that causes him to speak to this church in this way. And yes, the language is harsh and the picture is piercing when we think of Christ vomiting a church out of his mouth. But that's what was necessary. That's what he deemed necessary for their condition. He wants to shock them into repenting. And he says, turn from your ways and come to me. The remedy is always Jesus. All of these things, he says, if you will come to me, you can have it. Whatever you might have without Jesus, you're a pauper. You've got nothing. Whatever you might be able to hide apart from Jesus, you are exposed before God in your guilt and you will stand in that guilt before Him. Whatever you think you see in this world apart from Jesus, it's all make-believe. It's not real. It will not satisfy. He says, come. And then lastly, we have more of the promises of God in verses 20 to 22, another very often confused text. It helps us to remember that He is speaking to a church. Remember that the promises that He has offered in every situation have been to those who hear His voice, who listen and who remain faithful. And He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now there are a lot of people who would call themselves Calvinists who hate this verse because... Lo and behold, it makes Jesus look like He wants to save sinners. Regardless of the meaning of this verse, if you've got a problem with a Christ who's dying to save sinners, you've got more more verses to deal with than this one. But He's already made it clear, they believe that they don't have a need. They don't see their need. He's already made it clear, I have what you need. You don't see it. I see it. I want to give it to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now who hears the voice of the shepherd except the sheep? Who opens the door except those who would gladly welcome the visitor? He's, he's, he's just, it's, it's more offering. He's just offering. Here it is. And again, the blessing is that he's not left this church. They can hear him knocking. If you hear somebody knocking, they're still at the door. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot is made about the fact that he does not make any commendation to this church. But he also doesn't give them any threats like he did in Ephesus or Pergamum or Sardis. He's at the door. I've got what you need. He lets them know here at the end, in the very promises that He makes that He's not left. And for any who hear and are willing, He stands ready to provide everything in Himself. Now notice He says, if you'll open the door, I will come in to Him. Not into Him, but in to Him. He's offering communion. And again, the closest parallel I think to this is from the Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, where the bride, the church, speaks and says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. And then she hears him through the door. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with the dew. Why? Because he's been out all night. My locks with the drops of the night. He longs to be with his church. Now, if God would hold out His hand all day long to a stiff-necked and obstinate Israel, how much longer will Christ stand at the door and knock for His blood-bought bride, holding out His hand, even when she's busied herself and satisfying herself with everything else under the sun? And she says, I don't need. He says, I want to be for you everything that you do need and you don't even see you need. He wants to be with His church. Now, the nouns do transition into the singular. And this is where we, we begin to make application. I will come in to Him and eat with Him and He with me. The address to the congregation requires individual response. Do you need Christ? That's the question. We don't believe in papal bulls. So I can't infallibly declare, Covenant Bible Church hereby declares herself in need. And all of you just say, well, the Pope said it, I guess we're in need. That's not how it works. Every one of us as individuals have to assess our situation and ask, do I need Christ? You have to decide for yourself if you will have this Christ. Spiritual matters always come down to the souls of individuals. You, as an individual, if you will hear the voice of Christ and welcome Christ, He is ready and willing to come and to share intimate communion. That's eating with you. And to the extent that a congregation is made up of willing sharers in Christ, to that extent will the whole church grow in communion with Christ and share His blessings. We are, yes, a congregation, but we are a congregation of individuals. And as the individuals welcome Christ and commune with Him, the whole congregation experiences that and is blessed by that. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. How did Christ conquer? Through His death and resurrection. Those who remain faithful, though we die, yet shall we live. And we will go to be with Him and reign with Him forever and ever, ages and ages into eternity with Him. You see, this promise is not completely distinct from the other things we've already seen. Now, do you have an ear to hear this message? Do you need Christ? Or would you say, I don't think I need anything. I think I'm pretty good. Further questions for evaluating your answer because we're here. As the world crumbles around us, we've ventured out, we've come here. So you all know that the answer to the question, do you need Christ? We all know that the answer is, well, yeah, I need Christ. That's what we hear every week. We need Him. Your actions are going to show whether you really believe it or not. 
your actions will show. You might say, I need to brush my teeth. But if you never brush your teeth, you're just saying that because somebody else told you you need to brush your teeth. You don't really believe that you need to brush your teeth. So what is the best barometer in the life of a person to measure the pressure and intensity with which they feel their need for Christ? What's the... And you, you know the answer. What is the best barometer, the gauge, where I can look at myself, analyze my practice and then begin to measure how much I actually feel my need for Christ over against just saying, yes, I need Him. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. We can sing that. It's a great song. But if you don't actually feel your need, it's blasphemy. What's the best barometer? Number one, prayer. Prayer. I hear this all the time. I need to pray more. I need to pray more. Prayer's not like brushing your teeth. Prayer's like pulling your hand out of a hot fire. When it starts getting hot, you don't ask somebody or you don't say, I really need to pull my hand out of the fire some more. No, you yank your hand out. Why? Because you feel the need to get your hand away from that fire. That's how prayer is. It's not, it's not something that we say, oh, I just, well, I need to do it more. You don't feel your need if that's the way you think. The saints of God pray because we need. And we recognize who it is who satisfies the need. We need help, we need strength, we need answers, we need understanding, we need guidance, we need forgiveness, we need our consciences washed, we need near fellowship with our God, we need to know that He's near, that He listens, that He answers prayers, we need. If you're not praying, it's not because nobody taught you how to pray. It's not because nobody wrote enough books on how to pray, it's because you don't believe you need God. Plain and simple, period, that's the end of it. I'm glad we're learning about prayer on Sunday nights. And we need to learn about prayer. But if you're not praying, it's not because nobody told you how. It's because you don't need it. You don't believe that you need it. Because when you need it, you cry out. The illustration that I used with my kids last night was with my son, Ezra. He doesn't wake up in the night and nudge me. Dad, Dad, could you teach me how to ask Mom for milk? He doesn't. You know what we hear? (laughs) That's all he's got. That comes from a need. He can't articulate the need. He can't explain what he's feeling. He doesn't know anything about nutrients or his body. He doesn't know any of that. He feels a need and it comes out vocally. That's prayer. That's prayer. We could... If you're not praying, it's because you don't need God. You can say you need God. You don't feel that you need God. Christ says you make me want to vomit. Because you're taking my name, the the man of prayer, the the epitome of the example of prayer in Scripture. You're taking His name and putting it on your jersey and not living like Him at all. And we think that saying, well, I need to pray more. You're blind. You're deceived if that's the way you think. Prayer is the number one barometer. What's another one? You know, it, you know what it is. It's our use of the Word of God. How is your daily handling of the Word of God? Again, if it's not daily, it's because you don't believe you need God daily. Period. End of discussion. There's no reasoning out of this. If it is daily, but you're reading the Word of God like it's a chore... It's not because you feel like you actually need it. You ought to be reading the Word of God because you actually believe that without God's Word, you are pitiable, naked, and blind. I need the book because I need to hear from my God. If I don't have that, I can't live. I mean, I can, I can live, but I'm not really living. Do you walk into the sanctuary on the Lord's Day? Feeling your personal need to hear and receive and abide in the Word of Christ. Do you feel that? Or do you walk down the ramp? Here we go again. I can do this. I can make it. I can make it through another service. Or do you come saying, I just got to have the Word. Just give me something. Read read me something. As we think about it corporately as a church, would we be okay? Okay. If we just eliminated our corporate prayer time? 
Or do you wish that there were more times for corporate prayer? I've, had, I've been asked if we would ever consider instituting another corporate prayer time on a different day of the week. Would you be up for it? Or are you convinced you don't need it? It's very interesting that, the, that many of the same people who say, I just really need to pray more, if given an opportunity to pray more, they would say, well, I just feel like my family needs our family more than we need God. So we, it's just family time. We can't interrupt that with prayer. So, so just begin to add up the time that you spend in personal prayer with the time that your family spends in corporate prayer and see how much that amounts to. It's not going to be very much. Our families need to learn how to pray. If they're not seeing us do it, they're not, they don't, they're not going to believe mom and dad need. Our wives are not going to believe their, their husbands need God if we're not praying. Would we be okay if we reduced the amount of scriptural instruction in the services? I mean, come on, a call to worship. We have the reading of the scriptures, which turns into another call to worship or a sermon most of the time. And then we have another sermon. This is the longest sermon I've ever printed out of my printer. We just keep going. Should we get together and, and start setting limits and say, well, I mean, it's really too much. I feel like when it comes to the Word of God, I'm just, I'm good. Imagine that we're all quarantined in a military camp. And every family is given a seven-digit number that will be called out over the intercom at random, not in order, once a month where your family will receive your family's rations for that month. And if you don't show up when they call your number, you don't get your rations. And when that intercom came on to announce the number, how easily would your mind drift as those numbers are read? Understanding that my family's food is on the line. Your mind wouldn't drift. Not one bit. You would, you'd figure out how to, how to focus real quick. How easily does your mind wander during the public reading of Scripture, during the call to worship, or during the sermon? Just like that. Gone. When Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's more important than your food, and yet we, oh, for some reason, I just can't focus on the life-giving word of Almighty God that makes worlds and sustains everything. I can't give my attention to it. It's not God's fault. It's not God's problem. God's not being unclear. God hasn't, it's not that God hasn't been severe enough that we don't recognize, okay, He's serious now. The earth opens up and swallows people. He's serious. When you realize that you need something, when you realize that you need God, you're going to act. It's plain and simple. That's as easy as you don't have to. You might have to prod cattle to get them to go into a little stall, but you don't have to prod cows to get them to go to the hay. You roll it out there, and they hear it. They might take the path of least resistance, but they're going to get there, and you can see how they're going to get there. Nobody has to prod them. Nobody has to meet with the cows and say, look, we really need to work on your hay eating because if you don't eat, you'll die. They just go. And yet we have the very word of the living God and somebody has to say, you've got to be reading your Bible every day. You've got to be praying every day. When you realize that you need God, nobody will ever have to tell you again, you should read your Bible today. Not once. It, it won't happen. <laughs> it's interesting when you read biographies of other men in the past who were laid up sick with some... you know. Turns out it's tuberculosis or some fever that is going to claim their life. And they're laid up and they, they, they can't do anything. And then they write later in their journals that all they could think about, all they wanted to do was to have the Word, to read something, to share some communion with God, and their bodies would not allow them. That's all they thought about. Christ says, come and buy. He's the remedy. He makes the promises. He has the authority to fulfill the promises. Now, it's a very real thing that I believe even the saints can fall into this at times when you say, I, I recognize as you speak that I, I don't recognize my need as I ought. I don't think any of us would say, I recognize my need to the fullest extent. I mean, I can't grow anymore. In this. There is some growth. So what do you do? You go to Christ. That's the remedy, always. You don't feel your need. Try this. Read the Gospels. Go to Bethlehem and ask, 
What could be so important that God the Son would come down and take the form of an infant? What, what's so important? Go to the Jordan River and ask, what could be so important that the Son of God felt it needful to fulfill all righteousness? Go to Pilate's praetorium and call out to him and ask him, Jesus, why won't you answer? You know you're not guilty. You know you're innocent. Just tell him. Why, why will you not speak? Go to the cross and ask him. As he hangs there, ask him. As you're reading it, ask, ask of the text. Write it in the margin. Write it. Why would you not just drink a sip of that sour wine? You know it would have numbed the pain just a little. Why wouldn't you drink it? Or go to the empty tomb and ask the Roman soldiers, why didn't you just stop him? Why didn't you just stop him? Every answer, because you need a Savior. Because I need a Savior. You and I were wretched, pitiable, blind, naked, and poor. Because of that... He took the form of a man, was born of a woman, born under the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. He went to the cross. He suffered in the place of sinners. He went to the grave and came out of the grave so that you and I wouldn't perish in our sins. The Gospels are the record of the life of Christ because we need a Savior. If you don't feel that you need a Savior, it's because you've not understood it yet. You don't know why He came. We are all need... And Christ is all provision. That's all. He's just provision. Lavished from generation to generation to generation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All provision. And He comes by His Word to His churches and He says, I counsel you. Come to Me. Come to Me. If we ever get to the point where we don't need Him, He says, you make Me want to vomit. I was telling a family this week, it, it, it would be... It would be almost a it would be almost a relief to be able to sit amongst a group of believers and toss around biblical questions and answers and talk theolo- theological things and not know every single answer to every question. We know everything. We think we do. We sit around and we talk and we got to an answer for everything. Every problem that, that can be asked, every, every situation that can be put forth, we know the answer. We, I never pastored a church before. We've never been at a church this young before. We're all kids. We're young. But somehow we know every answer. That's very dangerous because eventually you're going to get to the point where you say, I know every answer. I don't need that. I don't need you. We've got it. We've got it figured out. That's dangerous. It's a very dangerous place to be. But Christ offers Himself, and we need to make sure that we stay in that mindset. Needy, needy, come ye sinners, poor and needy. If you're not poor and needy, you won't come. If you wait until you're ready, you will not never come at all. If you say, I have no need, then God says, I've got nothing for you, because all I've got is provision. Let's pray.